need to go somewhere, that's okay. That, that's fine uh, if you have plans. But uh, we will see what we can do. But let's pray. Father, we thank you so very much once again for your son, Jesus Christ, who has come and died on the cross for our sins, who was buried and rose again on the third day. We just ask that as we look at your word this morning, that we would respond appropriately to what we see in your word. And that the things that are written here for us, that these things would be built into our lives. And that your spirit would be working on our hearts, moving us, making us, and shaping us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We're very thankful for today. We're very thankful for this time that we've had so far. And we just ask that, uh, as we look into your word, that we would uh, see Jesus and that we would honor and glorify him. It's in his name that we say, amen. Let's go ahead and let's start in the book of Matthew, chapter 2. So last week, we, we kind of started looking at this text and, and looking at the Magi. So Matthew chapter 2, remember in verse 1, uh, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, this is Herod the Great, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now last week we kind of talked a little bit about some of the cultural things that were happening here, right? So Jesus is born and the Magi come later. So once again, I just want to apologize for all of you that have nativity sets, that have the three Magi there visiting baby Jesus. Probably didn't happen that way. So just know that if you have that on your lawn, you're on biblical. No, they're represented there because of the gifts that they bring. They come during the time of King Herod. They're, from, they're magi, so they look at the stars and they read the events of what's going to happen from the stars. They come from the east. We're not 100% sure where that, where that is. They come into Jerusalem and they start asking this pretty serious question, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Now imagine you're King Herod. Uh, you know that there's no kid born. You didn't have a son born. And all of a sudden people are saying, hey, where's that king that's been born? That would be a little concerning as a king. And then they said, we saw a star in the east. Don't want really to get bogged down on that, on what the star was and where they saw it and, and all of that. Just know that they saw a star and they came. And we're specifically looking at this last phrase as, a, as a, like a jumping point. They said, we've come to worship him. Now, what they mean by worship is probably not what we would mean if we were to say we have come to worship him, Jesus Christ. We have a lot more theological implications, scriptures filling our mind. But it is true that when they use this word worship, there's this idea that they are bowing down to, to, to a human, but that there is supernatural dimensions involving this human being. And so in that sense, we could say, yeah, there is very, there's a lot of supernatural implications to the birth of Jesus Christ. And so this Christmas season, uh, as I was thinking, what, what should we be thinking about during the Christmas season? It's about worshiping Jesus. And that's what we're going to spend the, December, the month of December talking about, worshiping Jesus. Last week, we talked about the definition of worship. We started with talking of some of the challenges that we have in thinking about worship. One of those challenges is that you and I have been the church before. We've done a thing that people have called worship. Now, it could have been good. Could, they could have had good definitions, or they could have had bad definitions. 
I don't know, but we've done it, right? We felt things while we did it. Were those good feelings, bad feelings? I don't know, but we did it. And so when we're trying to think of worship and we're trying to think about what God's word has to say about worship, all of those past experiences kind of flood in when we see that word worship. One of the other problems is that we have friends who talk about worship. They could have good definitions, they could have bad definitions, but they influence our definition of worship and our concept of worship. Unfortunately, most people today, when they think of worship, they think of sing-song time or sit-down-and-listen time. They think about coming to a building and doing what we're doing now, and this is worship. And that's really unfortunate because that's not what worship is. This is, this is worshipful. This is clearly we are worshiping, but this is not all that worship is, right? One of the other issues that we have is that our Bible is written in English, and we're reading in English. And as we pointed out last week, there are at least six words in the Bible, two from Hebrew and six from Greek, that are translated word worship, and they have various meanings. And so our concept of worship from English is from our friends, from past experiences. Very rarely are we digging into the original languages to see what those words mean. So we have a little bit of a challenge. Last week we looked at those six words and we saw two main ideas from those words of worship, right? The two in Hebrew and the four in Greek in the New Testament. And we categorized them into two, sub, two main categories. The first category... Uh, we, the, the main Greek word that we'll use is proskuneo. Proskuneo means to bow down and kiss before. And so the, the, the first idea of worship is to bow low. And the idea is, I am not worthy enough to look at your face. I'm not worthy to look at you. I'm, I'm unworthy to, to come near you. You are so deserving of respect and love and adoration has the idea of kissing the ground, which is a a symbol of you deserve affection, but you are so worthy, and I am so unworthy that I can't even touch you and show that affection to you personally. I have to kiss the ground you step on because you're deserving of affection, but I'm not worthy enough to approach you. That's the heart of a worshiper. It's one of adoration, it's one of respect, and it's one that starts off with saying, I'm unworthy, I'm not worthy. It's bowing down to the ground, falling on one's face. The other one is the one of service, and it's the idea that God outlines for us exactly what worship is. We should look at the Bible and say, this is what God defines it. He tells us what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. He has the right, as the creator, to to demand a specific type of way that we approach him. And we who worship him take that very seriously. And we're very careful to do those things. And so our working definition that we came up with worship is this. Appropriately respond, uh, worship is appropriate response of love to God. So when I worship, it's an appropriate response out of my love, dedication, fidelity to him. For his honor and for his glory. This is privately, I respond appropriately. And when we come together, we're responding appropriately. We just dealt with the definition last week. We're still kind of doing some definition work this week as well. Before we even get into how do we worship, I want to ask one question, and you may think this is silly, and you may think this is a wasted sermon. This is a throwaway sermon. Why would we even think about this? The question I want to ask is, who should worship? 
should worship. Now, on, on one sense, we would all say theologically, well, shouldn't everybody? Right? Like, isn't the creature obligated to worship the creator? And therefore, isn't there an obligation by every single creature as, as he responds to uh, his creator be an appropriate response of worship? I mean, I mean, isn't there that expectation that everyone should? And in fact, it's kind of interesting when you look through the Bible, there is a lot of times where there is a call worldwide for all the people to worship God. Uh, let, let's just go to a couple places. Let's go to the book of Psalms, to the 67th Psalm. Just notice in verse 1, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Right? Let's go over to 96, Psalm 96. Notice what the psalmist says there in 96. Starting in verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wondrous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory of his name. Bring an offering, and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Let's just go to the next one, Psalm 97. Notice in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let many islands be glad. Let's go just one more to 117. If you don't get the point by now, notice what he says in Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. There is numerous times where the entire earth is called to worship. And so we would say, who should worship? Theologically, we would say, every single human being that has ever existed is existing, and will exist in the future, is obligated to worship God, right? They're obligated to. Not only that, if these passages didn't convince you, there is one other fact that if you just knew this fact about the Lord, you would say, of course, everyone is obligated to worship him. We believe, and the Bible teaches clearly, that the major motivation of why God does anything is for his own glory, He is concerned with his own glory, first and foremost, and that's his motivation. I mean, let's just go to Psalm 48 for a moment. Or, I'm sorry, not Psalm 48, Isaiah 48. 
Now here, he, he's talking to uh, the, the nation of Israel. They're, they're steeped in idolatry, uh, a, a big mess. God, God is talking about how he's going to act. And you would expect when God says he's going to act, specifically dealing with Israel, he's going to say, it's because of the covenant that I made with Abraham. It's, it's because of the covenant that I made with, with you. And, and I made this covenant with you, and so I'm going to act according to that covenant. I'm going to be true to the covenant. What's interesting is he doesn't necessarily say that. So notice in verse 9, he says, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. That's interesting. Not for the sake of the people, not for the sake of the covenant, but for the sake of my name. And for my praise, I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake, For my own sake, I will act. And how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. Do you see that? See that in verse 11? For my own sake, for my own sake. It says it twice. Just in case you didn't understand it the first time, he says it a second time, that God acts for the sake of his own name and for his own glory. There's numerous other passages. We don't have time to go through all of these. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, it teaches us that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that he saved us by his own sovereign grace for his glory. Isaiah 43, he talks about how God created us for his own glory. In Isaiah 49, how he calls Israel for his own glory. John 7, how Jesus sought to glorify the Father. In John 14, Jesus answers prayers so that God may be glorified. In Romans 15, Jesus receives us for God's glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 20 and 10, 31, everything we do is to be for the glory of God. In 1 Peter chapter 4, 11, the way that we live our life is meant to glorify God. Philippians 1, 9 and verse 11, Jesus fills us with fruit for God's glory. In John 17, Jesus wants us to see his glory. In Habakkuk 2.14, God wants the earth to be filled with the knowledge of his glory. So we would say, theologically, who should worship? It's all the earth. And God has so designed the earth and so designed everything that he would be honored and glorified. But there's an issue. And many of, you, many of us are probably thinking of this issue of going, okay, I, I, get, I get that everybody's supposed to, but not everybody does. Right? There's a lot of people that don't. I would go even further and say they don't because they can't. They're incapable. They're absolutely incapable and powerless to actually worship. Now, I know that's a bold claim, and I want to show you a couple passages that I think demonstrate this claim, that people who do not know Jesus Christ do not worship and are incapable of worshiping. It is impossible for them to worship. Let's start in Ephesians chapter 2. Now remember, Paul's writing to a church. That's important to remember. This is to a church, to those who are already believers. He's describing the great salvation that they have that brings the church together as one body. Right? That's what he's writing about. We are one body, and and how is it that we're one body, and how is it that we're supposed to function as a body? And so chapter 2 is a really important chapter because it says, look, we all started from the same place. We all are saved the same way. We're all called into the same thing. 
No one in this room is better than anyone else. We all started sinners. We all were saved by grace. We all are put into the body of Christ. That's it. No one gets something. There's no silver deal, gold deal, and platinum plan here. We're all in the body. That's it. So we should function as a body because we all were sinners. We're all saved by grace, and we all go into the body of Christ. So notice in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's how we all were, right? We all were that. Not a very good sign, is it? And then notice the next verse. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we, sh- so that we would walk in them. Now, notice what he says in verse 11. And remember, we're, 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 talk, we're thinking about the idea that non-believers are incapable of worshiping. Notice what he says. Therefore, remember that, you, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called on circumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, you were a stranger, you were an alien, a stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see it? At one time, we used to do this one thing. We were following one leader. We could do no other. We were dead. Thus being dead, we were children by wrath, separated from God, didn't know God, didn't have any relationship with God. And the, and the, the inclination I get and the implication I get is it was impossible for me to do anything to please God. That is why God had to make me alive. Because if I could make myself alive to do something that was pleasing to God, I would have done it but I didn't do it because I was incapable of doing it. Therefore, God has to make me alive in order for me to be brought into Christ. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at another passage. You might go, Caleb, that's kind of a weak sauce argument. What else do you got? Colossians chapter 1. Great, great text, speaking of Christ, speaking of Christ, speaking of, of who he is. Notice verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated, and here's a fun word, hostile in mind. Hostile to who? Hostile to what? God, Jesus. So before you were a believer, you were alienated. There was no way for you to get with God. You were hostile in your mind. You hated him. 
right? And you were engaging in evil deeds. But then notice what it says, verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you. Notice that you didn't, recon- you didn't reconcile yourself. He reconciled you. He brought you to him. Right? He reconciled you in his fleshly body through his death in order to present before him, to prevent, present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now, maybe you're going, okay, Caleb, I see what you're saying. The hostility of mind, of course, somebody who's hostile to God is not going to be pleasing to God. It's still weak sauce. So you got another argument? Let's go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. Notice what is said here in Romans chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1 so you can get the sense. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Meaning this, that the moment I placed my faith in Jesus, it was as if I died, right? I'm identified with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. So when he died, I died, right? And when he rose from the dead, it's as if I rose from the dead. So this life that I'm living is now in this new resurrection power. I'm identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Paul's talking about, is this, this, that the believer is united with Christ. Verse 4, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. This is spiritual baptism. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So notice that the only way that anyone can walk in this newness of life, walk in a way that's appropriate, has to be tied to Christ. Has to be in Christ. And notice what it says, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would be no longer slaves to sin. Now that is an interesting phrase, right? Slave to sin. The implication is you had no choice in the matter. You did that one thing. You obeyed sin. You couldn't present yourself to anything else other than sin. Paul's insinuating it's incapable for them to do anything else. It's incapable for them just all of a sudden wake up and start worshiping. Notice what he says. He says in verse 7, For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ has been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, so that the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, notice verse 12. This is really important. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so as that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. Now notice, the non-believer is a slave to sin. In this text, when he's talking to the believer, there's this ability to choose one or the other. I can present myself to sin, or I can present myself to God as a member of righteousness. I can react appropriately. Before, the person could not. The believer can say, sin's not a master over me. The non-believer has no other option. Sin is the master. Therefore, it would seem to me, 
absolutely that the non-believer is incapable of worship. Now, you might say, well, Caleb, still weak sauce. I see the argument that you're, that you're building. Let's just go to Romans 8. All, all answers, theological questions, are answered in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Notice in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh. Now remember, the flesh is that part that is geared towards sin. It's the depraved part. So it's possible for a believer to be fleshly, to act like he's living by the flesh, doing all those things that are opposite of God. And a non-believer is totally in the flesh, right? That's what we would say, totally in the flesh. Everything that the flesh epitomizes, the non-believer is that, right? That's an important thing to remember. So if, if they're living according to the flesh, they can only set their minds on things of the flesh. And those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So only those who have the Holy Spirit and dwelling Holy Spirit can set their mind on spiritual things, right? So we say fleshly people, fleshly things, spiritual people, spiritual things. Verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh is death, and the mind set on spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. So anybody that's living by the flesh has this open hostility declaring war against God. By the way, if you're declaring war on God and are hostile towards him, that is not responding appropriately in love towards God. just want to let that sink in, that it's impossible to absolutely hate and be hostile towards somebody and act in love. Okay? It's hostile towards God, verse 7. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, so it doesn't, re- it doesn't subject itself, it doesn't... It doesn't, it doesn't uh, uh, appropriately respond to the law. And then notice this last little t- tag. For it is not even able to do so. Yep. So those who are living according to the flesh, who do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit, are hostile towards God. They are by nature children of wrath, dead in their sins and transgressions, alienated from God, alienated from any relationship from God. They are a slave to sin. They do not subject themselves to God, and they are not capable of doing so. As I think about this, by the way, um, (laughs) we're going over. Um, As I think about this, and I think about the, the theological implications here of God's call for all mankind to worship, and then the than the non-believer not being able to worship and, and not capable of doing that. I was thinking about our evangelism and why we do evangelism. And, and there's lots of reasons and motivations to do evangelism, and some of them are better than others. I think it's really sad in the modern American evangelical church that one of the motivations for our evangelism is, one, that just by me sharing the gospel by itself and no response whatsoever that I perceive by the other person is glorifying God. That by me just declaring the mighty works of Jesus, that enough is worship. And that's good enough in, in evangelism. That's, that's one sad thought, thought. The other sad thought is this, is that our motivation is not, 
I want God to be worshipped by as many people as possible. My God is worthy of the entire universe falling down on their face, worshipping him. That's how worthy he is. And I want people to see how worthy he is. I want him to be worshipped. And I think it's sad that our motivation is not we want to see God being glorified. Now, there's other motivations. Some of those are, are less. But I think maybe the top motivation should be I want God to be glorified. And I want his works to be known. I want his character to be known. I want people to worship him. I want people to see my God. I want them to see Jesus Christ. I want them to see all of his attributes. And I want them to have the peace that I have and the joy that I have and the satisfaction I have because he's sufficient enough. His word is sufficient enough. I want people to see this. And I want them to honor and worship and glorify God. Now you would say, well, Caleb, this seems like a, like a weird sermon. Who should worship? The whole time you spent about how, how everybody should, but then you spent a lion's share of the time talking about how all those non-believers can't worship. This is a bummer of a sermon. So then we'll ask the question again, who should worship? Everybody should. Believers can't. Who can then? Believers. Who should worship? Believers. There's one text I want to show you, and we'll close here, I promise. In John 4, Jesus says something very interesting to this woman at the well. John 4, great account, but just for the sake of time, we're just going to go to verse 23. Believers should worship because we're the only ones capable of worshiping. But I want you to realize that I just can't do whatever I want to do and then just say, here you go, God. Just take what I give you, and that should be good enough. God actually says, I want true worshipers, and he defines true worshipers here. And these are the people that he wants. These are the people that should worship. And and, and later on, we'll talk about what the implications of this and how we do this. But notice verse 23. It says, an hour is coming, and now is... When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Who should worship? Those who worship him spiritually and truthfully. Spiritually means has the Holy Spirit, indwelling Holy Spirit. Comes from the heart. Is inspired by the Holy Spirit working on the heart. It's not tied to human ritual. It's not tied to human locations. It's not tied to human traditions, and it comes from the truth of God's word focused in Jesus Christ. True worship is inspired by the Holy Spirit working on our heart, making us more like Jesus, focusing us on his word, driving us back to the text of scripture, driving us like a hammer on a nail to Jesus Christ. That's who should be worshiping, those people. Now, I said that this is partly for definition purposes. And and here's really why I think this is a really important subject. And I'm going to get a little soapboxy here. Forgive me. This is a really important question because, one, if you are here right now and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not worshiping. The rest of what we talk about has nothing to do with you. And my advice to you is to go home and fling yourself at the mercy of Jesus Christ. Throw yourself at the foot of the cross. 
beg for forgiveness, say, I realize that I'm a sinner. I'm placing my faith on you, Jesus Christ, in the person and work that you've done, and that's what I'm trusting. I'm trusting in that alone, you and your work alone. Second reason of why this is really important. There are so many bad views of worship. And one of these bad views of worship is that worship is only singing a song. Or that when I do sing a song, I get certain feels deep down in my stomach. And that's when I know God's working. And so many people, when they talk about worship, that's what they mean. I worshiped today. I got the feels when I sang that song that if I just changed three words, it could easily be sung to my wife. And in the modern church, where you have this bad view of worship and this bad view that this this building and what we're doing here is meant to attract non-believers to come in and you bring them into this place and they call non-believers to sing a song because worship is just simply, simply singing a song. It lowers our view of the gospel because the gospel is believe on Jesus Christ and trust. It lowers our view of God because it assumes that all of my dedication and adoration and love can be put into a three-minute song. And it assumes that if I just feel something while I'm singing that song, God is authentically worshipped. It doesn't matter what I do in the parking lot. As long as I raise my hand during the last chorus and I sing the song now, now God is glorified. That's a terrible view of worship. That is so narcissistic to assume that worship is just that. And it's such a low view of God to assume that he's just satisfied with somebody singing a song about him. Our God is far more worthy than a song. He's far more worthy than listening to a sermon. He's far more worthy than you coming once a week to a church building. He is worthy of all of your life, all of your attitudes, all of your thoughts. And to assume that worship is just this is such a bad view. And, and it affects this question, who should worship? Because in modern times, with non-believers and believers mixed in the same building for the purpose of having non-believers come to get saved and then saying, come and worship, it, it means that they think I'm okay with God because I'm worshiping him and I don't need the gospel. And it lowers the view of God to say that God's just like us. That then affects, thirdly, our philosophy of ministry on how we think ministry is done and how worship is done in our lives. It's far better for a believer to act in love towards the lady at the counter who's checking you out and accidentally miss misscans your coupon and you have to spend five extra dollars on your soda, it's far better to act out of love than to sing a song. It's far better when you pull out of the parking lot and somebody cuts you off to not yell out cuss words in your mind. It's a far better act of worship. Because worship is this attitude that is pervasive in all of life. It's the appropriate reaction in every situation. And so when we come together corporately and we start thinking about what is worship, Friends, it's always the appropriate response of love to God 
that is driven by the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness. It is always centered on the truth of God's word. It is always driving us, pushing us, pointing us to Jesus Christ. That's why this question to me is so important. Because if you answer this question differently, outside of what I think is what the Bible teaches, it affects so much. And the greatest casualty is people's view of God and the view of the gospel and view of what worship is. So the challenge this week is one, know that only a believer can worship. And if you are a believer, you should worship. You should worship passionately. You should worship all the time. You should see every moment as an opportunity to honor and glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we should do as a church. Let's go ahead and let's close in a word of prayer, and then the musicians will come up and sing.